David, are you ready to take these? I'm sure you are. Hi, David. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you very much for your talk. Pretty scary stuff. Um, I was reading my fridge before I left um, to come to Sakpa today, and just there was a little reminder. You were talking about how much water you're wearing on your body. Well, I was looking at how much water is used to um, make white flour versus brown flour, and of course the number is quite significantly different of five liters more for white flour than than for um, whole wheat flour. I think it was per, per pound. Um, and I think it was 40, something like 40 liters versus 45 liters, something like that. My question for you is, um, when, you, when you showed us the charts, you were saying that water, you were talking about water use, and the good water was blue, and then the, the water that's a little bit contaminated was green, and then there was another color. What was the other color? Uh, there's blue water, green water, and then fossil water. But the green water isn't con- isn't contaminated. It's water that's part of the hydrologic cycle. It's okay. stored in soil moisture. It's the rainfall that falls and is stored in the soil and okay. contributes to aquifer recharge, etc. So how do you designate, what color would you give to the water used in fracking first when all the chemicals are just added to it before it goes down into into the wells before the natural gas is pushed out, and then secondly, when it's lost forever to us and it's down in those in those wells and seeps into our water system and poisons us. I, I've I haven't given colors to those yet, uh, and, and probably and probably for good reason. Uh, the water supplies that are available or have been used in North America for fracking, have been fresh surface water supplies, have been fresh groundwater supplies, have been saline groundwater supplies. Um, they've come from a number of sources. Uh, I, th- I think the public's concern around shale gas, shale oil, uh, fracking for unconventional uh, hydrocarbons uh, has really been growing across North America and Europe over the last two or three years. And I think all of us have probably seen images on the television of some of the absolute worst practices possible. Um, and those, those certainly color our view of the industry. That said, I, I think one of the things we've recognized in the work that we're doing is that we're often faced with making decisions with incomplete information. And I know that in this whole area of fracking, um, we actually to date uh, haven't invested any research yet uh, into water use in fracking, albeit we've talked about doing it a lot, and albeit there are a number of other places in North America who are doing some of that research. But fracking is one of those things that becomes a very local issue that can also have regional uh, consequences. And so uh, the one thing that I'm actually enjoying about the water debate around fracking or oil sands or agriculture is the fact that we are actually having the conversation and people are able to ask tough questions. Um, 
I know in, in my own knowledge of how water is used in fracking in Alberta, I don't have answers, but I'm interested in the same answers that you're looking for. So somebody needs to be doing this. So will you make that as one of your recommendations, that there should be research done on fracking, or do you not dare to make such political statements for fear of loss of funding for your institute? Uh, we're, we're completely apolitical. We're interest, interested in the research, the knowledge, the information. And we're also interested in pulling the knowledge and information that's available from others and providing some synthesis. But as an organization, um, our interest is in the water, uh, not in the politics around the water, although you can't hardly separate the two. Thanks. I was thinking that we weren't getting another question, and you must have done the job really well, uh, David, but I see <laughs> we're, we are moving forward. My name is Tad Mitsui. I was quite surprised after being told to uh, use water on flashing the toilet, and watering a garden, washing my car, to find that household consumption water is minuscule compared to the usage of water in industries and in agriculture. Uh, and I was discouraged to hear that kind of data, you know, 3%? Mm -hmm. And whatever we save? Uh, do you have any opinion about that? I mean, I felt deceived. <laughs> uh, why don't you talk to the industrialists and, and uh, irrigation farmers about the problem of water? That's, that's a really good question. And, and it, it has a number of answers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, and it speaks to how water is so complex. Um, there are a number of people in this room besides myself who could talk about how improvements in water use efficiency within an urban area really don't make any difference to the river that you take the water from or return it to. There are some real concerns around the quality that you return the water to the river, but normally speaking, Alberta municipalities on their treated wastewater do a very, very good job at treatment. Stormwater return flow is still untreated and unregulated. So there still are some issues there. What drives Dave Hill to try and use as little water in my home as possible is because I'm stuck on doing it. And it's really about the consumption of other things that are important to me. And those are the costs of new water and wastewater treatment plants, the costs of more pipelines, the costs of chemicals used by cities to treat and purify water, the costs of energy to distribute water through a municipality. If I can learn to live happily with much less, that's much less of a consumption burden on that overall system. That's what drives me to use less. In regards to how industry is doing and how agriculture is doing, uh, there's those from irrigated agriculture who could give you more up-to-date information than I can, but Alberta's irrigated agriculture is some of the most efficient on the planet. And they're probably using a third less or even 
less than a third, or maybe even 35 or 40 percent less than they did 15 to 20 years ago on a per acre basis. Many industries are really also on a chase down in the amount of water they use. But industry is producing the things that, guess what? We buy. So we're part of this equation. We live in a, in, at least in the Western world, we live in a society that is very consumption-based. And we like to think that might be without cost or impact. Uh, the older I get, the more I'm finding there is cost and impact. And so I have to be a little more discriminating in my choices. But I'm still going to see if I can get below 100 liters per person per day in my home until my wife throws me out. <laughs> my name is Byron Palmer. I am seeing the Alberta water sources. I uh, didn't get a very good uh, view of the St. Mary Milk River water coming in. Perhaps if I'd looked more carefully, I could have seen that map on that particular one. But uh, would you comment on that current situation with regard to apportionment? I've been out of the picture for a while, and uh, I don't uh, understand whether that apportionment has been resolved or do they still have a committee to try to come up with a, an adjustment to the apportionment of the waters on the St. Mary and the Milk River. Thanks, Byron, and it's, it's great to see you. I didn't see you earlier today. Uh, the work that we had done, and, and this is a bit of the map, really was primarily focused on uh, Alberta watersheds and those that are directly contributing. And there is, Glacier Park does show up here, and so... I just don't have that piece highlighted at, at the bottom right. So there is some work done there, but this actually points to one of the things we've recognized lately is that none of these watersheds stop at political boundaries. We could easily do this map from here going through Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and that probably should be done. In regards to what's happening with the IJC on the St. Mary and the Milk, as far as I know, it is not completely resolved, but there might be somebody here who has a little more up-to-date uh, uh, understanding of, of, where that's, of where that's at. I don't know, Gerhard, have you heard anything different? Or, or, or Richard, anybody? As, as far as I know, the last discussions I had with the IJC, there's still discussions going on. David, my name is Tom Kane, and I... Just quickly want to say something about what color you should put in your graph. Uh, I have a question, but I can't resist saying that if you've got blue water and green water, the reason you haven't figured out what color to call the fracking water with all those toxins in it is it should be black, <laughs> and it should, wouldn't show up on your graph. <laughs> it would look terrible in a PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, so, that, it, yes, it would look terrible in a PowerPoint. And I, I'm not all that fond of black water anyway. I don't think anybody want no. to drink it. Um, different question. I was disconcerted some to find out that, well, I was pleased last week when Howard Tennant was here reporting on the 
environmental uh, monitoring panel and that we hope that will come to reality and hopefully your group will relate closely to all those scientists. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of sweeping the issues under the carpet, it would seem. The Edmonton Journal had a series of articles beginning August 31st talking about um, leaked documents that are now public about the allocation and that scientists have had said um, that they would do things like here, uh, for example, a draft government plan dated April 25, 2005 said that even with an allocation cap, it's expected the deterioration of the aquatic environment will continue as the existing licenses divert more water to the full extent of their allocations. And um, that was not really made public, and it kept saying, oh, water's not for sale in Alberta. But now when you find out that more and more water is for sale, that is it, I don't understand these licenses all that well, but it seems to me that if you have uh, a li you had a license but you weren't using it, it still uh, qualifies you to start using the water. You weren't using the water the last five years, but if you have a license to use it, you can start drawing that water, even if it has uh, adverse environmental effects, and you can start selling that water because it's yours. But it's public water. The water should be owned by Albertans, not by somebody who had a license and, and so on. So my question would be, how much water should be for sale? And what do you, you, you talk about having independence. Um, do you get a chance to say to uh, the government in power that you don't think we should be selling very much water? And why should some private people sell our water and they get the profit and we have to pay more. So there's, there's about 10 questions in that question. <laughs> How much water should be for sale, I guess, would be the... And, but, and, and he hasn't <clears throat> turned the page yet to the next part of his presentation. No, no that, only the one question, Dwayne. The one with 10. It's a complex issue, though. Well, and that's where I'll first agree with you, is this is a complex issue. And it's an issue that exists in Alberta and in almost every other jurisdiction in the world where water is regulated to one degree or another. I think the interesting lessons, if... Let me make a confession first. I am an ingrained, naive optimist. <laughs> That's where I come from. Um, what we learned in the project that we did last year on the bow... And if anybody wants to hear a lot more about that bow project, uh, Richard, when's the AIPA conference? It'll be, you know, the last so the last two days of November in here, the fellow who managed that project is giving a presentation at that conference. You should really go hear it. It's an amazing project. What it spoke to was your question but asked very differently. It wasn't who should sell the water, how much should be for sale, who should make a profit. It was about what do we need the water in the basin to do for us? How is it being used today? How can we manage all of the facilities in the entire system to deliver more benefits more sustainably? And how can you get at some of those benefits much quicker than if you have to go through long processes of regulatory and legislative change? Because water is such a political animal, changes are always difficult. 
Because anytime somebody feels threatened about their access to water, no matter who they are, the response is almost immediately that you entrench yourself in your long-held comfortable positions and don't ever talk about your interests. And we actually share interests across a broad spectrum. So how much water should be for sale, I think is a question that Albertans need to get their heads around, but it's not the only question. It's how do we manage finite variable resources under a future changing climate or conditions to where we can get more benefit from the water we have over time. And in many cases, the real driver to this is environmental outcome improvement. So it's a very difficult question that I did not answer on purpose to tell another story. That said, in Australia, where they have been working on defining through science processes sustainable yields from basins, they've gone full circle. They've gone from being politically driven to being collaborative with communities to being science-driven to where they're now back collaborative with communities. It's communities who really need to decide. Hi, John. Hi, Dave. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks. You're looking awful good for a guy your young age. Yeah, that's just <laughs> camouflage. <laughs> uh, somewhat retired. Uh, you know, at the, at the conclusion of your presentation, you gave a GDP graphic uh, analysis and uh, agriculture, of course, I think you said 6%. Yeah. Looked pretty pitifully puny. It did. Uh, but I think the explanation is that all value-added, further processing, food processing, et cetera, et cetera, is all lumped in that manufacturing component. So... Uh, yeah, part, parts of it is, John. Parts? Okay. Yeah, and, and I guess if I have a, a personal bent and goal... It's that we become more successful at matching primary agricultural production from rain-fed and irrigated with value-added here, but that we actually get to where that figure can be 15%. And my time horizon on that is absolutely ambitious. Yeah. It's 15 to 20 years. It takes a generation. We need to go for it, and we are. Yes. John. Uh, John. Uh, we didn't. The rest of us didn't catch your name. It's apparent that you oh. and David know each other rather well. <laughs> this is the this is the immensely talented John Kalpas. <laughs> Thank you. He, that's the immensely comment from a very generous Dave Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've been an agriculturist uh, career since uh, Tabor days, uh, Last Bridge, Edmonton. Uh, this is the fifty fifth year, and I'm still at it. Thanks. Thanks very much for your question. So in, in water and agriculture, you can tell you never get to retire. <laughs> Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming back to your roots. Uh, my question is uh, related to how tenants talked last week. Uh, it was mentioned by Tom Kane a little bit. Uh, how do you see yourself working with the recommendations that the been made, and do you see them going forward um, anytime soon? I remain optimistic. 
Um, what, what's the role of our particular organization in this? Uh, we have volunteered to the province to be able to provide them some structure around how would you implement a independent environmental monitoring system and structure so that you could tackle immediate issues right away while building for something that is province-wide. And we have also talked to the province about how do you ensure that over time the data that's being collected is available not just for public consumption, but is specifically collected to spur on and enhance the kinds of research activities that are taking place in the province, across Canada, and internationally. So we've had those discussions. Our last meeting with Alberta Environment on this was Tuesday morning. Uh, my sense is that in all things government today, nothing happens till after Saturday. And whoever the new premier is, is going to take some time. Now that said, all three of the candidates that are left, should they become premier and should they have some time to do some things, have all spoken very favorably and positively about the need for Alberta to go down this path. I think from an international perspective, if we want to improve access for our hydrocarbons globally, while at the same time addressing the environmental challenges, this is an imperative. This isn't something that maybe you can do. This is something we have to do. It'll have to be strategic, uh, and it'll have to be implementable. And uh, there's probably not enough resources for everybody to get everything of what they want all of the time. So what do we need to know, and how do we need to get it? I don't know if that's good enough for you, Newt. It looks like we have a little uh, shortage of questions at this moment. I know there are some more water guys in the crowd. Uh, they have some questions or not, I don't know. Uh, lacking that, I might sound a little facetious in suggesting to David that uh, there are some of us in this room that uh, feel that perhaps energy trumps uh, water as an important issue. For example, uh, solar energy drives the water cycle and provides us with all that nice blue and green water. Uh, could you comment on that, uh, please, David? I know we, ha we started this conversation at the table over lunch. And uh, I've, I've, I've looked at the energy question as, as our demand for energy encompasses a demand for water in the senses that we normally produce energy. Newt reminded me that the overall planetary things really are influenced by the solar energy we're getting that help drive ocean currents and everything else. So these things are absolutely intertwined. And because I'm a water guy, I'm still going to say water is more important. <laughs> okay, well, but I'm not going to... I'm, I'm, uh, and, and coming from an energy guy... Uh, I'll accept your point of view. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise. Next question. Uh, uh, excuse me. My, my name is Frank Toth. I, see, I seem to come in the rear end of all the questions each time. Uh, I think you've done a wonderful job in this very intricate water resource business. Your graphs, your graphs are very, very technical. 
I don't think I, I grasp one portion of it, although I do a lot of research. But uh, I don't know what we expect from organizations like you, one when we, in fact, the control of our water and resources are in the hands of the oil and gas corporations. That's, that's true. We have the proof of it. We have a vice president sitting in the cabinet of the, one of your great oil companies. Okay, I'm going to make it short. I'm going to make it short. Okay, and secondly, secondly, we have not recapitulated all our tar sands area. We're 45 years behind and replacing what we should have done legally one, 12 months after we take it out. What is your idea of, of the water that comes out of this torn up oil, oil, oil field, tar sand areas? Where's that water? I'm speaking basically of, say, say uh, Slave Lake. Commercial fishing was already stopped 17 years ago. It is the last clear water lake in the world. Have you tested those resources, that water for yourself personally, your organization, to show Albertans who own that resource supposedly again? What's happened to it? Just so in, in regards to the last question first, yeah, that, uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't done anything specific to Slave Lake. No. In regards to the oil sands, um, one of the interesting things that I think many Albertans maybe don't appreciate to the extent that they could is that water that has been used in oil sands production, whether in open pit mining, uh, I'll go with the open pit mining first, none of that water that has been used as part of the process, I shouldn't say none, a very small amount, uh, the majority of it is still in storage. The companies were not allowed to discharge it under their licenses back to the environment. In fact, I mentioned earlier in my remarks that one of the things we've keyed on is that we need to have some standards that would allow the treatment of water so that it could be released back to the environment because they don't exist today. So as a result, as of today, we have somewhere around eight-tenths of a cubic kilometer of oil sands, tailings, fluids in storage. That's a pretty big amount of fluids. Um, there have been lots of assertions that those tailings ponds leak. Um, I've been in the water business long, long enough to know that I have yet to meet a dam or something that doesn't leak somewhere. Um, so just to categorically say they don't is probably a, an oversimplification. Uh, our organization in Energy and Environment Solutions is currently uh, the lead funder in a very, very large project that involves uh, nine of the oil sands companies plus Alberta Environment, Alberta Energy, Alberta Finance and Enterprise, Alberta Sustainable Resource Development, and ourselves in developing an end-to-end -end technological solution to tailings reclamations. We're currently evaluating well over 200 technologies that exist today that might have some application to that while identifying what gaps there are that no technology fills so that somebody can work on that. We're beginning to believe the technologies exist. The drivers will be policy, regulation, and price. 
And I think this is where Albertans still have a role to play. We all, with our elected representatives or in any capacity we work, need to push Alberta forward on being this global leader in how we deal with these issues. Because we can be. It's not free, but we can be. Okay. Well, I think uh, we've come to the end of the questioners and uh, perfect timing with our last answer. Thank you very much, David. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was good to be here today.